I think we have a very short-termist view of technology systems. We forget that MySpace was the Facebook of the early 2000s, and not the same scale, but it was the sort of dominant player in social media. It's gone. The remnants of its assets were sold off to the highest bidder. And that includes all the data that was there, um, make no mistake. And so I don't know whether Instagram lasts forever or whether Facebook does. I'm not sure who will acquire the intellectual property, the data, or the ownership of that information in a decade's time. But I know as a consumer that I want control over it. That's the first issue, and I'm concerned about where that information rests in the future. I think we misunderstand that the data no longer disappears. It's there forever. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's show, I speak with Killian Kieran, the founder and CEO of Ethica, about the mission that he has embarked on with his company to help data-driven companies do the right thing with all of the data that they process and collect. And in the second part of the episode, we go deep on the topic of data, where I speak with Richie Barter, the founder and CEO of AltViz. And he has a great story of how he left his job in finance to start a business that is built around solving extremely complex and very interesting problems through data and automation. So as I prepared to produce this episode with Killian joining me to talk about data privacy and data security, and Richie joining me later in the episode to talk about big data, I found myself asking the question, what is data? Because at a time when data is attached to so many other words, I felt like I had to ground myself by defining what data is at its core. And in its most simple form, data is just computer information that is transmitted or stored. But this is what allows data to be this extremely broad topic, because we now live in a world where everything that we do is transmitted via one computer or another. And if we look at it through the lens of a more human level, data is actually our digital identity. It's how our actions, interests, and our communications are stored online. And the way that companies use this data is changing the world as we know it. Sometimes it's changing it for the better, but as we frequently hear in the news, it can happen for the worse as well. And these data breaches that we're hearing about more and more frequently are what are forcing regulators to act and impose protections on the transfer of personal data. And the most well-known data privacy regulation is GDPR, which was implemented by the EU in 2018 to protect the transfer of personal data both within and beyond the EU borders. And at the time of its introduction, Killian Kieran was at his last company, CKSK, which was a digital agency that he co-founded. And he had to deal with this headache of making the business compliant with this new data privacy regulation. And it became a huge headache for a lot of businesses because there wasn't a huge amount of data protection before this. So now companies had to hire a ton of engineers and lawyers to make sure that their businesses were compliant or else they were going to have to face some penalties. And a lot of the work was left to human design, which gave Killian the idea to develop some tools to make it easier for teams to do the right thing with the data that they process and collect. And this way companies are far less reliant on privacy by design and can work within a framework that Ethica has provided. Well, I'm delighted we're here because I think it's it's a very relevant topic and it's, it's something that people think it's something that's brought to people's attention a lot Mm -hmm. but it's not something that is often very well explained it's it's like it's it's a thing that's discussed to say we need to Mm -hmm. improve our data we need or data privacy Mm -hmm. or security we need to strengthen it Mm -hmm. and one thing i was curious to start off with is when you tell people Mm -hmm. well before i even assume that what do you tell people you do with Ethica and just to the general public this is outside of kind of business circles how do you explain what Ethica does well first of all thank you for having me obviously (laughs) this is the polite thing to do in this lovely setting but um, if I were to explain to a non-technical individual who just wants to know casually what we do we simply say that we try to build tools that make it easier uh, to trust in data-driven systems so so at a sort of macro level we believe or I believe very personally that Uh, average users, non-technical users, your parents, friends, family that don't work in tech have an increased distrust of data-driven systems, big business. That's for the reasons we've all seen, right? Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, etc. Could you just, what would you mean by data-driven systems? Sure. So uh, 
I mean, maybe the simplest way to describe it is back in the 80s, uh, software or technology and software systems were largely widgets and gadgets and small things. What I mean is they didn't power entire systems of technology. So contemporaneous finance systems are all powered by some kind of software and hardware technology, right? So data is flowing into them, processes and decisions are being made about those. And then more currently, of course, we look at advertising, media, communications, autonomous vehicles, air traffic control systems. You know, the, the Economist, I think it was probably 18 months ago, two years ago, published this line, you know, data is the new oil. It's probably a little bit hyperbolic, but I think the argument was simply to say that, um, was simply to say that if you've, um, if you're building a business in this modern age, then the most valuable asset that you're accumulating, if you're processing it correctly, is data. And therefore, the reality is it's not about tech companies. Every business is collecting some kind of customer data, data about who individuals are, what they like, dislike, how they behave in, in on a website, in a mobile application, how they behave when they enter a bank, so they can improve those systems and services. So, so the purpose for this data process is ostensibly good. The difficulty is we accumulate so much information, we don't necessarily protect and manage it correctly, that there is now a deficit of trust with those businesses that do this. And the, the sort of tip of the iceberg or the sort of front of this problem for most consumers was Facebook with Cambridge Analytica or occasionally being told maybe a bank or a credit card company that your data has been compromised, you know, a data breach or a leak. And the issue is as more data is collected and these breaches become more frequent, there's an increased distrust of big business effectively and its job in protecting that information. There's a whole bunch of uh, you know, reports and analyses conducted by virtually every research company on the planet at this stage that states that, by and large, uh, I, I won't quote the, the stats exactly because I don't want to misquote them, but by and large, consumers expect or trust in businesses to protect their data. Counter to this is businesses assume that it's the responsibility of a user to understand what's happening with their data. So we see these long terms and conditions and complicated documents that we're supposed to sign off on when we use a service, right? Terms of service and privacy policies. We've all checked the box. Very few consumers read these and very few of us understand them. And the difficulty is as all of that data, as I said, is collected and used, uh, consumers are increasingly distrusting of these systems. Uh, data privacy regulation, which we'll get to in a moment, tries to enforce or mandate behavior on businesses for that data. Well, our role in that, irrespective of the regulations, which do play a part in it, our role or our vision and mission as a business is to try and build tech that we give to other businesses, so we're a B2B entity, um, that makes it safer for end users of those companies. So we provide technology so that you can rest safe in the knowledge that when your information goes into that business, they're doing the right thing with your data. Ostensibly, the right thing is a, a moral compass issue. Obviously. On the moral compass issue, one yeah. thing I'm just curious about that you said mm -hmm. there, you were talking about the assumption on both sides that mm -hmm. the companies assume that the customer knows what yep. they're doing with their data. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to riff on this sure. as an example. So the branding company, Siegel mm -hmm. & Gale, mm -hmm. uh, Alan Siegel, the gentleman who founded that, mm -hmm. uh, pushed forward this whole idea of clarity. Mm -hmm. So he would go in, back in the day, he would go into banks and law mm -hmm. firms, mm -hmm. and when they had contracts, which were terribly detailed and complicated, mm -hmm. he would show them how to take that from 40 pages down to one and a half pages to use plain English, plain language, Absolutely. and would teach courses at Fordham Law mm -hmm. of how you can actually um, present these points in mm -hmm. simple language. Now, there was two sides to that. Sometimes the banks wanted it to be really complicated because mm -hmm. there were hidden things in there mm -hmm. that they could then, you know, kind of, of turn on the consumer. Yep. But there was also just a mindset that that's mm -hmm. what you did. From your experience of dealing and looking under the hood of these tech companies, are these terms mm -hmm. and conditions are they designed in such a way to look so extensive that we don't want to, to go to actually observe it and mm -hmm. pick it out that's the first question that i have and secondly is do they have good intentions with the data most of the time or are they kind of using that as an affront to make it really big yeah. so that we're not going to look at it so that they can hide what they're actually doing with it it's such an interesting set of questions so i'll, I'll try and break them down and ask yeah. the first one first so so um the idea of consent policies was, is, like most of these things, it comes from a good place, ostensibly, and not necessarily that it's misused, but over time it's not necessarily fit for purpose. So if you consider, and I'm sort of going back in the annals of the internet here, in 96 and 97, data collections and the amount of information collected by any website or system was minuscule. And even early 2000s, what we really collected to, say, process a credit card in an early e-commerce website was minimal. 
you know, you only really got to a point of sort of mass data collection, behavioral data collection in the, you could say, the middle of the first decade of the millennium, right? And the result is this mechanism of consent. So this idea that I would effectively enumerate or list all of the things I'm collecting about you as a user um, and allow you to understand what they were and then approve or deny those things. It went from very short paragraphs of text and became these sort of missives, right, over time. I don't genuinely not to defend tech or any business. I don't think that there was any malice necessarily at the outset of that process. I think they followed the guidance that was there, which was you need to inform users about your, what you're doing. And nowadays, when we talk about data privacy, we talk a lot about the idea of informed consent, which is what most businesses fail in, which is this idea that a consumer must actually understand what they're agreeing to. In most cases, they don't. Uh, someone pointed out to me recently that if you buy, um, it's it's not informed consent. In fact, it's uh, enforced consent. And I'll give you an example. If you buy, not to pick on Apple, I mean, they're a very privacy-centric organization. But if you buy a new iPhone today, you all know that moment where you turn on the phone, it says, hello. And the first thing you have to do is agree to the terms of service. If you don't, you've bought a $1,000 brick. I mean, it literally can do nothing for you unless you agree to all of those terms. The argument with informed consent is that I would understand everything that is taking place or everything that is being collected about me and the why of it. And I could agree to those things at a very fine-grained level. The difficulty is balancing the needs of the business to offer a valuable service that you as a user want with the reality of whether or not a user wants to read this stuff. And the truth is it's a user experience problem, right? Not very many people want to read this stuff. And back to the example you took of Siegel, they, he or they as a business ultimately became famous for distilling this very terse and dense copy into this very readable single document. The difficulty in the technology world is that the volume of data and the variety of, of what is collected about an individual user and the reasons for which it's collected are, are candidly vast. I mean, most people fundamentally don't understand just how much information is collected about them from a single system and what it's then used for. And more often than not, it's not for nefarious purposes, but the difficulty is then if it's breached or that information is lost by that business or something happens accidentally, then it can fundamentally impact the user. And this is the, the point of consent. To come to your latter point, I don't believe that most businesses use them to sort of, um, you know, uh, scare consumers into submission to sign up. Um, I think they don't have a better mechanism today to do it. And there's a lot of discussion in the data privacy industry and amongst sort of privacy and, and design specialists about how you might improve the experience of giving consent for things to any business or entity because this current system is broken ultimately. What are some of the ideas that are coming out of those conversations? Well, lots of things. So the first is uh, one of the things that we play with internally, so a concept that we've designed internally is that we think the privacy policies, that example of these sort of multi-page documents that nobody ever reads are impossible to consume. So trying to use other design tropes that consumers are very used to. So for example, we all know how to read a nutrition table on the back of a package of food. Most people have been trained to and it's been codified over a long time. So we've been prototyping a version of a privacy policy that is effectively designed and looks and feels like a nutrition table. You can see them on our website and our customers' websites. And it shows you what information is collected and in very simple tab tabular form what it's used for. And you have the ability to agree or disagree to those things individually. Just that simple step, although still onerous for the user, makes it much easier than several pages of what are a legal contract effectively. So trying to present it in a way to the user that is simpler. The other is the idea of uh, gradual informed consent. So instead of asking you for all of the information up front, I ask you for information as I need it from you and I explain to you what I need as you go. So instead of a blanket consent at the start, agreeing to things as you use an app. Now the argument is you'll be agreeing all the time as the app progresses, but would that be better than sort of this obfuscation where I don't really understand what's happening in the underlying system? That nutritional table is very interesting. I like the sound of that because that means that you're cued every time you see something that looks like that, just like... Correct. It becomes behavioral, right? You yeah. assume that this is a way of presenting what information is collected about me for what reason? And it is that simple. You can see it on our website anytime if you go to our privacy policy. It's just a list of the information we collect, uh, what it's used for, and what right you have over that data, which is invariably all of the rights. And you can rescind access, you can allow it, etc. And we stop it immediately. And presented as a table rather than sort of a legalese document is far easier for an average user to consume. Right? Yeah, so, and it would probably be easier for your mind to track and compare completely. and contrast. Because Absolutely. if you think about it, when we look at like a nutrition, there's a couple of areas that we look to, whether you're trying to reduce your sodium or your fat or your sugar. Totally. You know, your mind just directly goes that and you actually you don't consider the other things because they're Precisely. not deemed important. Precisely. And so for that very reason, in fact, we group in our nutritional table if you, of privacy, yeah. if you want to call it that, we group data into the things we do with it. So the purposes of processing. So we do this with these types of data. We do this with this. So if you're an e-commerce business, it might be, well, we have your first name, your last name, and your 
address because we deliver products to you. We're going to need these. If you say no, we won't be able to deliver things to you. That's quite rational. Conversely, we collect cookie data and browser data about you to understand your behavior so that we can target you with ads. You might say, well, I don't want to participate in that, but I might also lose behavioral recommendations about products I would like. It's a choice I have to make. But I need to understand that. And when that's buried in deep legalese, that's very difficult for the average user to consume. Very interesting. Um, so just because we we extrapolated that, and I just want to... Uh, We've gone b- down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah bring, bring it in. So uh, just to go back to that on how you would explain Ethica uh, to course. the average person, <clears throat> then we can, we can use that <clears throat> as a jumping point. Yeah. So we build technology that we sell to other companies that collect consumer data in order to make it their system safer for average users. So we effectively say that we create tools and technology to make it easier for engineers and data scientists and marketing teams to do the right thing with users' data. It isn't to say that people naturally are trying to do the wrong thing with data, but most people that work in a marketing function or finance operations, they're not focused on data privacy, they're focused on whatever job they have in those businesses. We provide the tools for them to make it easy to do the right thing with that information. So to begin from there, Hmm. is the prioritization of data privacy, is it up to the principles of the company mm-hmm. or is it kind of a set of rules that minimum rules that have to be abided by i suppose there are two ways of looking at that right the, one is the the cultural shift and you could say there is a pretty significant groundswell globally now for a concern over data and therefore increased transparency in generally in organizations whether they be business government non-profit in how they manage and process and use data. And that's just driven by end users. And one could argue that that groundswell is just driving a cultural shift in business in how they behave with data. But more concretely, you then have the regulatory efforts. So for example, in Europe, you have the GDPR. Uh, Most recently here in the US, in California this month, January, or this month, January 1st, uh, California privacy law came into effect. And there are broadly privacy bills being considered in every country. If you look at it through the lens of privacy regulation, so mandated regulation, it becomes a fundamental business risk. If you don't do it, you're going to get fined, and there's no way around that. And that affects almost any business. There are some nuances, but if you collect and use customer data, you are subject to these regulations. The counterpoint, again, is that increasingly this is a concern for average users, and therefore becomes something that affects brand trust. I mean, if businesses continue to lose or damage user trust in their management of data, that affects their brand equity, right? At a marketing and sort of consumer behavioral level, you don't trust businesses. Eventually, you don't work with them or don't buy from them. Okay, so something just on that, because mm. I think you're talking about regulation and the, the kind of cultural shift is, mm. is re- obviously, it's, so, it's mm-hmm. so commonly discussed now because we hear about these breaches over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Um, but something that I'm curious about is what's the separation between data security and data privacy? Because yeah. they can be like very often interwoven and sometimes used in place of each other. Absolutely. A, a huge amount of confusion still exists. And candidly, if you were to ask me seven years ago, I, when I first heard the expression data privacy as a software engineer, I thought data privacy and data security were broadly the same thing. The way to think about it is that there is essentially data security, data protection and data privacy. They all ultimately overlap in some sort of mishmash or a Venn diagram, if you will. But if you were to try and distill them, data security is how you protect systems that contain data. It could be user data or any data, but that is the security of those. That's sort of the ring defense around them. Protection, conversely, is how you specifically impose controls on your systems for users' data. And data privacy is how you provide rights to individuals who've put data in your systems to manage their data. These obviously converge at some level, and they're all, um, you know, certainly in the lens of data privacy regulations, you need to achieve all three to be truly compliant. But they are distinct practices, often the responsibility of both the legal and technical entities within a business. With that then, so um, just to take the, the US as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a groundswell uh, for data privacy, mm-hmm. is there anything enforced at a, at a federal level of what companies need to implement? Sadly not. Um, and and that, I say that from a business perspective. If you think about it practically in the US with the 50 states of the US, it would be far easier if there was a single federal regulation, much like the GDPR, right? It's, it's much easier to operate in... I'll step back. If you're a business in Europe, while the GDPR might be very frustrating to implement, very challenging, create a lot of friction and change in the organisation, it applies across the member states of the EU. So you have a commonality in what you must do as a business operating in multiple uh, states across Europe. In the US, conversely, for a number of sort of, I would say, federal level political reasons, federal regulation has been clo- slow to form. 
where you have a draft set of bills at the state level. The issue with this is while that's, there's great progress being made at the state level, California being first, Nevada, Vermont, New York, uh, in practical terms for businesses, if those states form different regulations, you end up with a patchwork of 50 states of regulations that you must comply with. It's much more challenging than federal. I think most people that are tuned into the, the policy aspect of this would say that over the next three to five years, we'll broadly have a patchwork over the 50 states of the US. And the hope, at least for most uh, privacy specialists, would be that we'll have federal regulation within the next five to seven years. I think some are being pessimistic about that purely because of the current political climate. It's hard to assess. And why is it that Europe is more advanced in this area than the US is? Great question. Um, I say it with a smile. Privacy, fundamentally the right to privacy, not related to data, just privacy, is enshrined in the Constitution in Europe. So it's a it's fundamentally a human right, and it's always been part of our, our constitutional thought. That's the case in many, many global uh, states outside the US, effectively. The US is one of the only countries in which its constitution doesn't bake privacy in as a fundamental right. Now, the reasons for that are manyfold, but, but fundamentally, privacy isn't enshrined in the constitution, and therefore, it's not culturally part of the fabric of society here. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's always been a sort of value exchange, I was going to say quid pro quo, but I don't think that's the thing to say. So um, a value exchange between um, business and consumer, whether that was sort of offline in traditional CRM systems for loyalty or contemporaneously in technology, that's always been here in the US. Whereas Europe and Asia and uh, Asia Pacific have always had much stricter views of what privacy constitutes. And as a result, Europe has moved much, much more swiftly to address these issues related to sort of the vast growth of data collection effectively. And has Europe been the leader amongst doing that, or are there other countries that are very progressive in implementing this? The short answer is Europe is by far and away the leader, yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, there are a number of reasons for that. There were a, a number of cases at the sort of country level in, in Europe, in both Spain, Germany and France, that set a benchmark that define the need at the um, sort of ECJ level uh, to address this, essentially. So to say, OK, well, how are we going to mandate this across the European member states so that we have interoperability of standards because data is flowing between all of these countries continuously, effectively, which is why we then ended up briefly with the history lesson in, in the law here was we ended up with the Privacy Shield, which was an act enforced to ensure that data could flow from Europe into the US for US tech companies and so forth. And that still stands today. But obviously what everybody's trying to achieve is what are called adequacy agreements agreements, which are essentially exactly that, a, a standard operating agreement between two separate entities about data flowing between them. So obviously the member states in the EU have adequacy agreements, meaning data can flow between them. Post-Brexit, uh, the UK will have to rush to put in place an adequacy agreement with Europe or data will not be able to flow between uh, the UK and the rest of Europe. Japan already has an adequacy agreement under GDPR, so data can flow between those two states. Um, it's vital in order to maintain business operations. Interesting. And on that, then, with the US mm. and its regulation, I, I read an article that mm. you wrote, I think it was back in October, mm -hmm. about Andrew Yang's stance yes. on um, data privacy. Data dividend. Uh, yeah. So yeah. correct me now if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but you were supporting his his insight mm -hmm. and his mm -hmm. his uh, detailed analysis of, of data privacy, um, but did not agree with his stance. First of all, to tackle that, mm -hmm. is there anybody else that you've seen that's kind of in the political sp yep. sphere at the moment that is speaking at a similar level to Andrew Yang? And mm -hmm. then if you could just talk about his stance that you didn't agree with. Yeah, of course. The, the short answer is disappointingly, nobody else is. Certainly, if you take a US-centric view, I would say there are a handful of um, regional politicians, not in the US, I mean sort of in regional areas in, in Brazil who are very forward proponents of, say, LGPD, which is the Brazilian version of GDPR, if you will. And so there are a handful of clever legislators who are thinking deeply about these problems, but at a level that will have the sort of federal impact that an Andrew Yang could have if he were to be elected, not so much. Um, that makes sense in that Andrew's background is ultimately tech, right? So he has an understanding of the sort of entrepreneurial aspect of the value of data. The difficulty with Andrew's thesis is, while he paints a very cogent uh, sort of frame for why it's necessary to regulate, and to place some kind of intrinsic value on data, all of that is true. The issue is that if it becomes a fundamental value exchange, and by that I mean cash for data, the likely outcome, sad as it is to say in the current very stratified society we live in, is that the, the wealthy won't have the impetus or need to share their data, and those that don't earn the same way will share their data. And it becomes analogous to some pretty unsavoury stuff in the 1800s, right, of you know, experiment, medical experiments being done on the poor because they needed 
that money where the wealthy never did. And I think that would be my concern, and that's a very aggressive view, but my, my concern would be that we end up in a world where uh, very large corporations accumulate vast amounts of data about uh, a tract of society that can't afford to lift themselves out of financial difficulty or lack of education, whereas the wealthy continue to sort of perpetuate their a slightly elite bubble and, and don't need to share their data because they've no financial incentive to do so. So, so while I think the thesis of a need to both regulate and find a solution to the problem is valid from Andrew, the solution that is a sort of financial data dividend, that's not a scalable, workable scenario in the long term, I don't think. There was, there was a line that you had on that article, uh, which was a quote from Michael Furtick that said, the rich see a different internet than the poor. That's true. That's already very true. And I think, you know, there were arguments over the last number of years here in the US, if you recall the net neutrality bills um, that affected this also, or, or the potential to affect this, this idea that, you know, both on the business side, some could pay for um, faster pipes, effectively. You know, so the Netflix and Amazons of this world would pay for faster pipes and cut out the possibility for innovation because you fundamentally have speed throttling. Right now, that's a different issue. The point simply being that um, uh, if you are from the wealthier parts of society and you have the newest uh, mobile device or hardware and you're operating on the fastest data plans your digital experience both in terms of your experience and speed of access to the internet and then the type of information that is returned to you are fundamentally different than what is returned to an individual living in the rust belt of the u.s um for a number of reasons behavioral targeting back to the data collection issue and we see proof of that in the elections both in the uk and here in the u.s that's a serious serious concern there for manipulation of sort of mass manipulation of of the public um, based on targeting. Um, and a lot of that comes down to geographic segmentation, demographic segmentation, and access to resource. Um, there's no question that those living in coastal cities in the US, with higher earning power, higher levels of education, see a different version of the internet in terms of content that serves them and messaging than those living in rural America. And is that because of their interests? Or where does the where does the correlation there? Oh, it's such a... It, it, where does it where does it tie into the fact that they're low income? Um, it's just what I'm curious about. Yeah. So I, I, yeah. a little bit that I have read about mm-hmm. this is that you know if if you if they're able to gather data that you are in debt and you are mm-hmm. struggling, then you will be aggressively served, um, you know, uh, advertisements from same day loan companies, uh, uh, for profit colleges. Correct. Um, and there's a huge system that's in place to keep, you know, funneling this information towards you mm-hmm. until you you make that decision toward it. Is that is that the kind of is it is it that they're targeting their vulnerabilities and insecurities? Is is that really how the right? I, I, I th- I'm, I want to be cautious to say because it, it could sound very nefarious if I said yes. But but the way to think about this is it's unfortunately it's so much of this is decision making is now made by machines and I don't mean it's all automated. But take the example you gave there of sort of same day lending systems or payday lending systems, right? Um, it's not that they're targeting an individual in difficulty. There are behavioural markers that have been collected about an individual's. Uh, content that they view or things they search for. It's anonymized, so they don't know that it's definitively this individual in Virginia. But there's enough behavioral data to say he exhibits these propensities. He may likely be in financial difficulty. That data, that that pot of data, is placed into what's called a data co-op. It's anonymized, and it's placed in there with a bucket of other people that demographically match those same behaviors. And ads can be served against those. The reason this is so important to understand is that that same uh, technology is used to serve messages about uh, conspiracy theories, um, about you know uh, particular sort of points of view politically. And I, I, I'm not going to sort yeah. of take yeah, either yeah, side, yeah. but but that same technology is being used in that way, not by somebody sitting at the helm in a nefarious way, sort of pointing the finger individually, but broadly saying this is a message that we want to deliver to individuals that we believe have a propensity to believe it or or potentially believe it over time if they're hit with it enough. And the systems are now available to do that at a very, very granular level, monitor the performance of it, tweak the messaging or adjust the targeting until it yields the result you want. That is what we saw in the last elections. I mean, and that is going to happen again. This isn't about Russian actors. Right now, this is all legal. A business can do this. That's the difficulty. And what can an individual do to protect themselves? Because we've spoken about what's being enforced at Mm -hmm. a regulatory level Mm -hmm. and what companies are going to have to Mm -hmm. do. But... And the, and the expectation that they yep. have, the, con- the consumer knows what's happening with mm-hmm. their data. What are, what are some things that the, an individual can do and things that people should be looking out for to yeah. kind of in, 
maintain the integrity of their of their data? It's a good question. So this is into the space of sort of personal privacy management. Now, practically speaking, Ethic is very focused on building technology to make the businesses you interact with safer, uh, or organizations you interact with. But there is a lot that individuals should understand about how they use systems, not necessarily in relation to businesses, just how they use their personal technology. Um, so for example, there's a lot of use of, uh, there's a lot of talk about using uh, browsers with better privacy-centric controls. So for example, broadly speaking, Chrome collects a lot of data. I mean, it is a Google product. You can turn on privacy settings within Chrome, but they are limited and they're not very clear to use, they're not very intuitive. One could argue that Firefox from the Mozilla Foundation is a safer browser, and I don't want to sort of paint a broad view of that, but it's a safer browser in the sense that it's designed to provide maximum levels of privacy. More broadly, consumers have the ability to turn off or opt out of the use of cookies mm. if they wish to. You need to understand. What are cookies? Cookies are very simply. Cookies are little text files, so quite literally like the ones you would write yourselves in Notepad or a Word document, that have a few lines of text in them, often unreadable, like obfuscated text, and they're stored inside your browser. So they're not stored on the server of a company. They, they are saved into your browser by the websites you access. Mostly not nefarious. They will you know, track something like they'll create a, a unique identity that says this is Patrick's computer, and then it might say he's looked at these types of content today. And that cookie living on that browser can be shared in a data cooperative sense with other companies that may want to find people with the same types of behaviors as you. If you don't want, and that's not the only use of cookies, but you can think of them simply as sort of very small breadcrumbs or cookies um, that contain small amounts of information. You amass hundreds of these in your browser. If you ever look at your the sort of cookies inside your, um, if you look at the history on your computer and you look for your cookies, most users will find hundreds if not thousands of Are they kind of, of like identity tags? They will have an identity tag in them and they will then have behavioral information attached to that identity tag effectively. And some of that will be in the cookie and some of that will be stored on a server with a relationship to the identity tag. So it's able to say not that Patrick is Patrick, but there's an individual called serial number whatever and they have these behaviors or exhibit these behaviors and ad buying platforms, for instance, use these to target you appropriately. So they know that you are who they think you are and can target you. You have the ability to turn them off. You have the ability to opt out of those. Uh, you can delete them from your browser at any time. Like you can physically just go to the history of your browser and delete your cookies. It's important to understand the effect. Deleting cookies will do things like delete preferences that you might like for websites that you want because they have a valid use also, which is to save your settings, your personal preferences on websites that you use. So there is the sort of compromise of needing them to serve certain value, but understanding the exchange that you give there, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And from a broader perspective yeah. then of your, of your data privacy, are there... Other things, you know, you you spoke so so cookies is one. You mm -hmm. spoke about using different browsers. DuckDuckGo is another one. DuckDuckGo is fantastic. Obviously, DuckDuckGo is for those that aren't familiar is a search engine like a Google or a Yahoo or a Bing um, that has a very sophisticated algorithm, just like Google does, for serving you search engine results. But it's not supported by advertising, so they collect no data, and, and that isn't a sort of semi-sales message. They fundamentally collect nothing about you. They don't use cookies. They don't store any behavioral data. Nothing. There is a downside. They have indexed less of the internet than Google, but not so much so that you would have a very poor browsing experience. So for most users, DuckDuckGo would be a better experience, or as good an experience as Google, unless you fundamentally wish to use Google. But bear in mind that the exchange with Google is fundamentally based on advertising. That's how they make their money. Okay, interesting. Um, and I'm curious just to get into this. How, how did you get into working in this whole privacy sphere? Is this something sure. that you always had an interest? Or, well, you mentioned seven years ago you, you yeah. wouldn't have... First, Being able to decipher yeah. between those two things, yeah. Yeah, so um, my background is, uh, so academically, I studied computer science and physics in what was DIT in Dublin. I dropped out, so much to my mother's continued sadness nearly 20 years later. Um, that's a point of contention. She wants you to get that piece of paper. Oh, my mother, that's a big deal for her. I, I yeah. failed as a human until I get the degree. Um, there's time. Exactly, I keep telling myself there's time. I'm telling her there's time. Um, but I dropped out and, um, look, it was the very early 2000s, like quite literally the millennium. And so, you know, there was, on the one hand, there was the dot-com uh, bubble bursting the first time around, but also there was still a huge amount of demand for tech and software engineers. So I quickly got a job as a software engineer, mostly consulting, and very shortly thereafter started my first business, um, which was essentially a digital consultancy um, called CKSK. We started in Dublin. We were lucky enough to grow very quickly internationally uh, into uh, Amsterdam, then Eastern Europe, and then the US. 
and that business essentially was sort of a hybrid consulting services business. And so we did everything from building large e-commerce platforms to mobile technology for large brands. You know, customers were like Heineken and Dell and Sony and Pepsi. As our business became more sophisticated, um, so too did those customers we were servicing. And the volume of data they were collecting grew and grew. And the concerns around the risk of that data grew and grew. And in particular, that seven-year point is, I, I remember vividly one of our customers, I won't name, their global legal counsel walked into a room and asked us, um, what were they going to do about the GDPR that was coming into effect, this data privacy thing? I had no idea what GDPR was. I didn't understand data privacy. To me, data privacy was something to do with data security. Um, and obviously spent the following seven years having to clean up the the messes that have been made from an engineering standpoint and address the issue and realizing that it was growing as a problem for businesses and users and that there were no viable solutions to that issue effectively. And was that what engaged you then just by working on it to see that there was an opportunity to build this as a mainframe? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it was very simply that. We, we looked at the solutions to data privacy compliance, if you want to call it that, was hire consultants, spend hours and hours of manual time and labor, and still end up with a system that wasn't behaving correctly, like the technology hadn't changed. You had just imposed a layer of people and process on top of it. Mm. Um, and what was missing was a fundamental change to the technology so that it behaved in a safer way. There's a set of principles in, in broadly in, growing in the software industry called privacy by design. And privacy by design has seven fundamental principles. Um, you can think of those relating to how you design a technology system, not in the sort of uh, visual design, but actually how you technically design a system, how you think about your users' needs and the safety of their data, and then how you make that information safe as you collect it and process it and so forth. And these seven principles, they aren't superficial. What I mean by that is they aren't fixed by adding people to a company. They're fixed by changing the way the technology is built. Um, and it became very clearly apparent to us that the way technology needs to be built has to change, but the tools to do that don't exist. So if we can provide tools that make it easier for teams to build better technology, we can build safer systems in the future. And so where is where's Ethica at now? So it was launched, was it two years ago? Yes, yeah, so we started building the technology two years ago. Um, for the first year and a quarter, I would say we presented nothing. We didn't talk publicly, we didn't say anything, we didn't have a name. Um, we were just building technology. We knew exactly what we wanted to build. It's a great name, I really like well, it. Well, thank you. Um, it took a time, it was time to get there. But um, So we were building technology for a year and a uh, quarter, and then we presented publicly for the first time to investors and customers about eight or nine months ago, I guess now. And that was both to test the waters with potential customers and sort of uh, look into investor demand to fund the business. We very quickly raised a seed round, so we raised $6 million from you know some very well-known investors, both here in New York and in Boston, that has allowed us to accelerate the growth of the business. And so we now find ourselves sort of eight, nine months after that first investment, having deployed the product with customers, both what we would call sort of startup and early stage through to large enterprise, and we continue to deploy with those customers, test with them, and effectively grow the footprint of the product. And what's the, what's the growth of the company looking like? We're in the beginning of 2020. Yeah, well, 2020 is, you could say, a uh, a landmark year for anybody that works in data privacy because of California privacy law. In the context of the US, it's about as important as it gets, right? So um, the last month over the sort of Christmas holidays and New Year's has been as busy as it gets for us because, in essence, every business has been scrambling to comply with uh, California privacy law. So, it, it, you know, the trajectory has been fantastic for us. Demand has been great. We signed up some amazing customers. Um, right now, demand far outstrips our resources. I shouldn't say that out loud, I suppose. We're fine. We've got plenty of people. But no, we're hiring uh, drastically to, to address that. So, um, you know, we're hiring across the board software engineers, uh, data analysts, data scientists, designers, product managers, etc. So and you've you've recently taken on a taken on a, a very recent funding round. Correct. So just this January, um, we've uh, closed our Series A. Um, we're very excited with that. So we raised an additional thirteen point five million. So we've raised just under twenty million to date now. Um, that additional fundraise will allow us to grow very aggressively for the next eighteen months, and and really scale to meet the market's demands because the next three years really will be the sort of ramping up period we believe for data privacy, and and the investors that have joined us are you know world class. So the lead is uh, a gentleman called Lee Fixel. Lee Fixel was the lead of Tiger Global for the last decade, where he built some of the largest technology companies in the world. So his reputation precedes him. And he's taken a very early position in Ethica because he believes that we're doing something both very important for society and fundamentally building a very valuable business. So it's very exciting for us. Something I want to ask is you personally, mm. what's your personal 
management. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about our digital yeah. footprint. Yeah. I like how that's kind of bled over, you know, from our carbon footprint to yeah. our digital footprint. What do you do to manage your I think I have to be careful here I'll sound like I live inside a Faraday cage like <laughs> like Will Smith an enemy of the state but but uh, um no no more practically speaking I um I only use a private browser I have physical protections and guards on top of any cameras on any devices I own and I only reveal them when I want to use the camera um I have distinct passwords for all of the systems that I use um I don't maintain those anywhere centrally I have a sort of like a personal system that I've designed for passwords across things so I can just remember them but they're quite straightforward but no two are the same um, I change my passwords once every couple of months um, I don't opt into very much uh, from a, a consent to marketing activities perspective so it does prevent me from using some services I won't name them but a large e-commerce retailer I tried to use recently I couldn't physically check out in their they have a physical store a pop-up shop here in New York and I couldn't buy anything unless I agreed to let them have all of my data and I discussed this at the counter with the lady and walked out of the shop without the uh, really? the trousers that I wanted because there was no way for me to buy it without agreeing to this term. And I didn't want and to. Just to explain that, so like yeah. that's where you're going with your credit card, mm. swiping on a machine, and then is it asking you to like click a button to say that you... So in this particular retailer's case, they're a well-known online brand and they have physical retail now as well. And I walked in to buy a, a jumper and uh, I went to the counter with the sweater and they explained that they used their website to check out. So they had this point of sale system. And she basically asked me for my email address. And I said, well, I, I, I don't want to give you my email address. I, I have no wish to. And she said, well, the only way we can give you a receipt. We don't have physical printers here. And you can't return the item without a receipt. Um, is we have to email you the receipt. And I said, but I, I, I don't want to give you my email address or my name. or any, You don't need any of that for me to buy this sweater so well, there's no way around this unfortunately and we went th we poured through the website together and she was very friendly about it and we conceded and agreed that there was no way for me to leave that shop with a physical receipt without giving them my name phone number and email address which i didn't want to do so i didn't uh, and is your is your apprehension giving it because they can then target you with ads or, or what's because businesses do a really bad job of managing the information they collect very simply not to say that that in that business specifically does it's more broadly back to this issue of data privacy it's poorly understood it's poorly managed um, and very often businesses are not compliant there's another retailer that i did buy something from under almost the same circumstances i opted out in the store in the point of sale system uh, to consent to marketing and i received three emails a day for the following seven or eight days until i call them <laughs> So those systems don't work very often. They're badly managed or they assume that consumers will gloss over it. But the risks are increasingly high for businesses to comply. So, so very personally, I take a very conservative view because I believe that unless consumers exhibit that behavior to businesses, businesses won't shift. Um, and that's a vital thing that we all, we, is, you know, it's voting with your feet ultimately. Right? Sure. And something even further than that to push it out, I, I saw an article that you wrote about how you removed your kids photos from all social media platforms correct what instigated that decision to do that so um my wife and i took up this wasn't a sort of it's funny people assume it's some kind of pr effort uh, my wife and i took a, a genuinely long hard think about this which was we had a private feed um of photos of just our children mostly to share with family so you know family very close friends so they could see our young kids and i think a number of things struck me over the sort of 18 months that it did exist was that um Today, that information is private and it's held ostensibly um, uh, in protection by this business um, that, that I hope is doing the right thing with that information. Even if they're not doing anything nefarious, I think we have a very short-termist view of technology systems. We forget that MySpace was the Facebook of the early 2000s. And not the same scale, but it was the sort of dominant player in social media. It's gone. The remnants of its assets were sold off to the highest bidder. And that includes all the data that was there, um, make no mistake. And so... I don't know whether Instagram lasts forever or whether Facebook does. I'm not sure who will acquire the intellectual property, the data or the ownership of that information in a decade's time. But I know as a consumer that I won't control over it. That's the first issue. And I'm concerned about where that information rests in the future. I think we misunderstand that the data no longer disappears. It's there forever. The other issue is that information like this regularly leaks publicly. And there are a number of examples of this over the last three years. So uh, uh, it sounds slightly scary, but there's an um, open source project for uh, facial recognition. Uh, it was developed initially by Microsoft in consort with a couple of universities here in the US. They scraped photos that were available under Creative Commons licenses from Flickr and all sorts of places over the last couple of years. 
so they without people's knowledge or full understanding they just scraped the photos because they were publicly available i think i think don't quote me but it was you can find the data online it was about 100,000 people's faces but it constituted a couple of million photos of those individuals collectively and they used it to train an ml system to better recognize faces essentially ml being a machine learning system. machine learning yeah, yeah. and so um that data was then placed on two servers, one at a university in the US and one at a Microsoft-controlled data center. But they were publicly available to any other research entity that wanted to use that data. It transpires that the Chinese government took a copy of that data and have used it to train their uh, facial recognition systems. I'm not saying that the Chinese government is going to do anything nefarious with it, but n no user in that database gave their consent for images of themselves to be used to train security cameras. Um, and I think we, again, underestimate how data gets scraped by systems and used. And the example that I gave in that article that is worth understanding, because none of this is science fiction anymore, is how data can be used already. So the concern I have is the future effect it has on my children when they're adults. So for instance, it's already possible from photos to potentially do skin detection. So there are lots of companies that specialize in trying to identify uh, skin pigmentation that might have a disposition towards cancers. Not guaranteeing that you have cancer, but trying to identify early warning signals. There is no reason why an insurer could not use that same technology to look at photos that are publicly available of people to try and identify higher risk individuals from lower risk and then rescind or uh, insurance completely or potentially offer higher price premiums that's simply by putting data out in the public space there's no way to prevent that so from my perspective i believe that it's the rights of my children to decide what they want to share when they're of an age that they can understand the potential um, of what that data will do in the future and whether they want to so we took the decision to remove everything yeah yeah do you believe that for the future of it, for, for there to be more security or for it to be mm -hmm. better contained, mm -hmm. that it has to come from regulation or from individuals mm -hmm. voting with their actions? It will require several sort of a confluence of several dynamics, if you will. One is r regulation will never go away. Once you start to regulate an industry, it only compounds over time. Every corporate scandal or cor corporate failure will beget more regulation. There's a history of that in every industry that's been regulated. So we'll see more regulation. The second is consumers, and the evidence is already there, right? Regulation happens because consumers ultimately vote with their feet, either politically or just with businesses. So the GDPR is partly consumer response, right? Like it's governments doing that on behalf of a population that's unhappy. You know, the, the court case, landmark court case in Spain were brought by individuals, you know, not corporations. And those started the ball rolling on what eventually became the GDPR. Um, the California privacy law was ultimately, yes, you could say, uh, came to fruition because of a very wealthy sponsor in, in one individual, but it was an individual who pushed for legislation in California, ultimately, and then with the sort of support of lobbyists and backers and so forth. But that's individuals pushing for regulation. But so then you could say there's regulatory effects, there will be the average public effect or the sort of general populace effect of voting with your feet, whether that's through not using a business for a lack of trust or pushing your local senators and, and, and government officials to regulate. And the third is a shift in the behavior around technology systems. What I mean by that is software engineers are very good people, I, I'd like to think, right? I don't believe that, by and large, they act with any nefarious intent. Actually, they want to make the world a better place. They're very curious. They want to solve problems. They want to make life better. I think that can go wrong when you have a culture of moving fast and breaking things, right? This It's very sexy right now in the tech world, particularly with sort of venture-backed businesses to be agile, and, you know, that again, that phrase from Zuckerberg, move fast and break things. Uh, moving fast and breaking things is a terrible idea when technology powers society. Like, it was a great idea when it was video games and widgets and non-critical technology. And I often cite this example. In the 80s and early 90s, technology had impact, but it was relatively uh, low magnitude, right? Now, today, it's banking, uh, financial services infrastructure, air traffic control systems, automated cars, potentially, um, the media communications. That's critical infrastructure. That's analogous to civil engineering. If you met a friend who was a civil engineer building a bridge and they said, yeah, we like to move fast and break things, you'd have a panic attack. I mean, you never cross the bridge or go down the tunnel. Software engineering culture is going to change in the next five to 10 years. It's going to be more about moving purposefully and fixing things. It doesn't mean going slowly. It just means acting with intent and thoughtfulness for the users because these systems have to last a long time and affect a lot of people. And I think the confluence of regulation, public opinion, and engineers' recalibration of what matters 
will shift the industry. We already find that when we're hiring engineers, we find engineers who come to us and say, yeah, I, I, I'm really concerned about privacy. It's not a sales pitch. They've been working on other businesses. They've seen what's happened, and they don't want that to continue. Do you have any recommendations of reference materials or anything along those lines for people that are interested in learning more about their privacy, how it all works, uh, to get a better understanding of it? Because it's one of those things that mm-hmm. is commonly shared in the media, but yeah. it's it's uh, it's kind of like trigger news, where yeah. it's only when something dreadful has happened that mm-hmm. that story is then discussed. It's, yeah. it's rare that there's kind of a broad and deep view on it. Is yeah. there anything that you'd recommend to... So there's there's a few things. The first is it's this is a little bit it sounds a little bland, but as it happens, the Information Commissioner in the UK, so the ICO, has a very well written website that explains in reasonably plain English in a nice intuitive layout the rights that we all have over our data and what that represents. Now it's written on one side for businesses to comply, but on the other so that consumers and average people know their rights. It's a fantastic resource. It's definitely pretty heavy and pretty dense, but if you really wanted to understand your rights, if you cared to know, the ICO's website, they've put a lot of thought into what that looks like. So if you Google ICO and GDPR, you'll find the sort of the plain English version of the rights you have. Um, if you wanted a slightly more macro view of the risks of data privacy, and it's a slightly more frightening view of it, I would say, there's a fantastic book written by Shoshana Zuboff um, called The Surveillance Economy. It's about, it's about surveillance capitalism, effectively. And it paints a pretty dire and stark picture of the state of affairs today in sort of modern corporate uh, corporations, particularly the tech industry. It's a wonderful book, but it's in line with sort of Thomas Piketty's capital. Like, it's a hefty read. Uh, But if you want to understand where we're going and why this matters, it's worth reading. And then the other, not to plug ourselves, but we happen, like, entirely separately to Ethica, we operate a resource called privacy.dev.dev, and it's just a published uh, news website full of uh, research on data privacy, but some technical, some very uh, sort of consumer-friendly about how to protect yourself with facial recognition, how to think about your rights in certain systems, uh, what data privacy looks like in Europe versus the US. And that's updated regularly by industry professionals away from Ethica. They're just something that we invest a lot of time and energy in. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and now, just before we before we come to the end of this, mm. we use this as a, as a platform to mm-hmm. connect and support Irish innovators around the world. So with Ethica leaping into mm-hmm. 2020, mm-hmm. Is, there, is there any ask that you, or any way that the Irish community, the listeners of this can support you, whether it's through... Uh, the p- types of people you want to speak with, types of businesses or talent or anything along those lines. Of course, well, thank you for the offer. So what I, what I would say is, uh, the first obviously is we're happy to, uh, independently of selling our services, we believe that our, our part of our job is to help people make systems safer, whether you buy our tech or not. So we offer everybody the same offer today, which is we're happy to speak with anybody and help them just understand what they should be doing, irrespective of whether they use Ethica or not, just get a better handle on what data privacy is because we believe it's about sort of, uh, you know, a rising tide, raising everybody. And so education is vital. So anyone who wants to better understand what they should be doing as a business can get in touch with us and we're happy to offer that guidance at no cost. Uh, more concretely, our technology is built for any industry vertical. So if you think you have an exposure to data privacy regulations or you want to know whether you do or not, reach out to our, our business development team anytime um, and I'm available most of the time via Twitter anyway um, and we're happy to help give guidance on whether or not you need something like Ethica or another solution and then sort of more broad ask of the industry and the community we're growing like crazy um, it's the obvious hiring plug um, we're hiring very thoughtful software engineers product managers designers data scientists machine learning experts um, people who want to solve very very difficult problems because it really matters in the sense of this isn't just about building a business. I hope that what we build at Ethica is a platform that makes everybody safer when they use technology. And so I want people to come join us and help us build that product. Um, so if you think you've an interest in solving what is a really, really important problem for the next decade, I would love to speak to you personally. Incredible. An exciting journey ahead. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks very so. much Thank for coming on and sharing this wisdom. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've learned plenty. That was Killian Kieran of Ethica. And if you want to learn more about the company, you can visit ethica.com, which is spelled E-T-H-Y-C-A. So now we're going to be turning our attention to another Irish founder working in the world of data, but this time in a completely different space. Now, big data has become somewhat of a buzzword today, especially when it is spoken about in the news, and we hear that phrase, harnessing the power of big data. 
but I'm sure you've asked the question, what is big data and what does it do? Well, today's guest, Richie Barter, founded AltViz to help businesses use big data, automation and machine learning to solve some of their most complex problems. And the idea for this business came to life when he was working as a trader at HSBC over eight years ago. There was this seminal McKinsey paper, I think it was around 2010, which was on this idea of big data uh, and was bouncing around. And, and I picked up you know, the piece and uh, read it. And I found it, found it was really interesting how this was even an issue for other people because we, you know, on the trading floor, we mostly made data-driven decisions anyway. That was the whole kind of reason behind what we did. And it was fascinating that, that you know, other companies maybe weren't as efficient at doing that. Um, and there was this opportunity, this world to take data, to use it to make better decisions um, and ultimately to automate processes. Um, and so I, you know, I took the little bit of money I had. I was supposed to buy a flat with it. Instead of buying a flat, I still don't own a flat. Uh, I used that to bootstrap the company uh, and I set off on my own. This was Richie's first business and he was diving right in to start a pretty complex one. It's not as if he had the fortune of starting other smaller businesses beforehand as a means of experimenting. When I was growing up, I never really had, you know, I wasn't at the front of my house selling, you know, lemonade on a st stand or in college, I was never one of these guys who was, you know, setting up club nights and trying to make money on the side. You know, I kind of lived off in a very different fairy world of sports and, you know, having fun and studying a little bit when I had to. So, so the whole entrepreneurial thing was a real shift for me. So Richie was leaving his corporate career to launch his business, which he was going to bootstrap with his own finances. But he also wanted to learn about software engineering because he didn't really have a background in it. He had done some coding during his time as a trader, but that wasn't going to be enough. So Richie set himself this huge challenge to bootstrap his first business and do a master's in software engineering at the same time. I found this master's in software engineering in, in Oxford and it's a part-time course, so alongside bootstrapping this company, which I'd never done before, I decided to go and learn how to, to write a lot of software and, and uh, learn how lots of uh, formal algorithmic methods and stuff. So that was really challenging, but really, really valuable. And I was curious to know, in the balance of doing a master's on software engineering at Oxford and launching a new business, which was more of a challenge? And in terms of kind of choosing between whether the studying or the, um, the, the company, Actually, the studying was easier in some respects because it was very discreet. So, you, you know, you would go and there would be a finite piece of work that had a deadline that was an essay or a piece of code you had to write and you'd deliver it and you'd be tested on it and you'd be successful or you wouldn't be successful. With a company, it's very different. It doesn't necessarily give you that feedback immediately. You might need to chip away at sales process or outbound lead generation or your, your base product for, for, for years until you get to a point where you're happy with it. And it doesn't give you back that instant feedback. And that patience took a long time. Like when you were in a company, a small startup, you have to be so patient. And then that was one of the hardest lessons in the first years, definitely. Waiting for this thing to evolve to a place where it was beginning to really move. And, and that, I found that tough. And when Oldfiz launched, they focused on turning complex collections of data into visual representations. So initially when we were you know, very early and it was just a small handful of us, we were doing very high-end data visualization. You know, we helped one of the largest banks in Brazil to visualize the performance of all their call centers across their you know, banking infrastructure. We helped uh, a large telecom company to, to look at a very complex quality of service process they had and visualize that. So we were doing really interesting stuff, but I think we, we, we learned pretty quickly that, that there was a limit to that size of market. And our customers were saying to us, you know, the visualization stuff is great, but actually you seem really good at the data preparation and the algorithms as well. Can you start to think about how we would use our data in a slightly different way? not just to visualize it, but actually create insight from the data. Um, and so, you know, we were led by our customers into a, a kind of a new iteration. Then after bootstrapping the company for over three years with a handful of staff, there came an inflection point in Altviz's growth. There was a real seminal moment for us when we actually managed to land eBay as a customer. And that was our first major logo on the platform. Um, and that was about five years ago. I realized pretty quickly on that to go from what we were doing to handle something of eBay's scale, we were going to need additional funding. I needed more developers. I needed to build you know, a bigger product team. It was an interesting decision to have to make around, you know, to go down the funded route or to try and continue the bootstrapping thing. The, the problem is that the level of upfront investment you need for some of these deep technologies that we have, building natural language processing capabilities, building voice capabilities, they're just big lumps of work and you need teams of resource to do it. 
Um, and it just wasn't, we weren't going to survive. We weren't either going to deliver a really poor outcome for eBay or we were going to, you know, fail along the way. And, and I didn't want either of those outcomes. So we, we, you know, we bit the bullet and said, okay, let's now use, you know, sell some equity and, and, and start to use that capital to grow the business. Today, Altviz has a team of 18 and they're continuing to solve complex problems in multiple industries. We really narrowed it down to sort of three core areas and one functional area. Um, so so uh, the business verticals we work in are a lot of digital supply chain work. Um, and in that area, we, you know, we help um, particularly short shelf life producers to reduce food waste and react better to customer demand changes. So our customer there that we, we reference a lot is Hovis Breads, top three baker in the UK. Um, and you know, working with Hovis, we've helped to automate a process that reduces food waste for them across their supply chain by helping them to react quicker to changes in demand. It's important to, to get this right. So in the world of CPG, um, you'll have people who produce the plan and people who produce the order. And so produced order tends to be where it's a short shelf life product, like a dairy product or a bread product. Um, and it, you know, it has a shelf life. It needs to be baked and shipped. That's basically what happens. Supermarket chains will order on a day and they'll expect delivery within 24 or 48 hours. So they'll order 50,000 loaves of bread and they'll need it across three distribution centers in 48 hours time or 24 hours time. And some of that bread baking will be branded and some of it will be unbranded. So, you know, they might be doing own brand bread as well. And so one of the challenges is every morning a baker will wake up and they'll have an estimate of what they need to bake that day. So at five in the morning, they'll start baking. They'll, they'll have a plan to make 10,000 loaves of this particular product. But actually the order, the final order will come in at some point in the morning and it might be above or below that initial estimate. And what we do is we help to get that information to the baking teams faster so that they can react to that change that reduces food waste, but also builds capacity that allows them to actually go and bake other products that they need to bake at the same time. And then in other industries we work in, as I've talked about eBay a little bit, we do a lot of work in the e-commerce space, uh, and that tends to be about automations around performance in e-commerce uh, and operational performance. Kind of to move on, we look a lot at insurance. That's a big sector for us. And then financial services kind of bundled in with insurance. In insurance, a good example is um, we do a lot with voice recordings. Uh, so in insurance, we help uh, claims teams to um, do a couple of different things. So when you've got a car accident, you'll have uh, that first notice of an accident. Use when you call into the car company or the insurance company and you say, um, you know, I've had an accident, this is what's happened. And the insurance company will actually take that notice of an event and it'll drive a whole series of downstream actions in, in the insurance company from how they deal with your claim, how quickly they deal with it, um, you know, what it means from a financial perspective for them. Um, and, you know, if, if they get that determination wrong, that can cause a whole lot of problems for them. So what we do is we listen to every call recording at the end of every day. Um, we, we transcribe the call recording. Uh, we infer, we just take some parts of the speech out of it, and we infer the severity of a car accident. And then we check in the claim system of the insurance company to make sure that what the call handler has identified matches what we found. Uh, and we do that on as many claims as we can. And if we find anomalies, we say, well, look, you seem to have thought this was a fender bender, but from what we can see in the call recording, this looks like it was a serious injury. Um, you know, can you call them back and find out a bit more information or can you do, you know, you need to take an action. So that's quite a complex automation. That's something that was being done manually before where, you know, kind of insurance companies had to listen back to call recordings as part of an audit process. And by using this kind of voice analytics component, we can do some really complicated things with it. Um, and then you can flip that around as well and do things in the sales arena where you listen to call recordings for, you know, different language that's more successful for sales. And um, there's some, some work we're doing there as well. I was fascinated by this work because it gave me a real feel for what big data is and how it can bring solutions to problems that might seem too big and too complex for companies to figure out for themselves. And I was also curious to know that after eight years, how Richie felt about the work that he was doing. Because every job was a brand new challenge to solve. I never wanted to set up a company that just did one thing. And again, if you go back to the VCs, they're like, well, you need to do one thing really, really well and own that and win that. And I, well, that feels a bit boring because once you've solved that, then what do you do next? You either sell the company and you go sell another company. So I really like that our, our platform can be configured quickly to deal with all of these complex problems because the world's a messy place and there are always going to be these challenges. And um, what I love is being able to kind of work with my team and the platform to configure our technology in a way that allows people to address them. And in terms of where we're going as a business is actually getting to a point with our platform that other people can configure our platform themselves, whether they're data scientists or software engineers, to actually solve their own automation problems as well. And that's really exciting, you know, kind of roadmap for us over the next couple of years. And just to give you an idea of where Altviz are present today. So, you know, we're, we're, we're taking it slowly in terms of growing the business, um, sort of from an international perspective, but we're definitely 
growing very fast in, in the UK and Ireland. And then on top of that, we're you know probably looking to raise a little bit more funding in the next 12 months, and that will help us to scale the business out. And, and uh, we're very lucky that the, uh, the, the venture capital world and the, the investment world seem to be very interested in what we're doing, and, and we're, we're certainly having some very interesting conversations on that front as well. So it's all looking really exciting. And I think um, for us, the next major product milestone will be starting to help a data science team to take models and deploy them on our platform themselves at scale for, for you know, automations that, that you know, we're working together with our customers on. And I wanted to know if there was any way that the digital Irish community can help support Altfiz in any way. I mean, as, it, as we've kind of talked about, we love solving really hard automation problems. If you have any automation problems you want to solve, we'd love to talk to you because I think we can do some really, really interesting things with probably techniques and technologies that people haven't appreciated. And uh, I think it would be you know, fascinating to have a conversation with some of the community to understand if there's ways that our platform could help them. And it, you don't have to be an eBay. You don't have to be the biggest company in the world. I mean, we'll, we'll work with primarily big companies, but we'll, we'll work with companies of most sizes. A second ask I would have, which I think maybe also is good for this community, is that you know, we're scaling up and we're still learning and we always love to get good advice. So if there are people out there who are interested in sort of, you know, helping us on the way in terms of advice or mentoring, we're always interested to get that input and that, that, that kind of learning. You can learn more about the company at altviz.co and they are currently hiring for roles in Cork and in London at the moment. And for means of other communication. So very active on LinkedIn, so you can get me there or, you know, just reach out to me directly via email, richie at altviz.co and happy to have a conversation. I want to say a huge thank you to Killian and Richie for joining me on today's episode. And thank you for listening. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. And if you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social media with hashtag Digital Irish. If you are listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, then please subscribe and review the show. It helps us a ton. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcasting platforms. I would like to say a huge thank you to Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast. <laughs>